This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Meg Kissinger discusses her book, While You Were Out, an intimate family portrait of mental illness in an era of silence. She speaks about her family's struggle with mental illness and her coverage of mental health care in America as a journalist. She's interviewed by Mindsight News founding editor, Rob Waters. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Two years ago, some colleagues and I started Mindsight News as the only national news site focused solely on mental health reporting. We did so to fill a void, but long before we launched, my guest today, Meg Kissinger, was plowing that ground as one of the only reporters in the country working squarely on the mental health beat. For 35 years at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Meg covered the workings and mostly the failings of what we euphemistically call the mental health system in this country. But Meg also knew about those issues on a much more personal level as we'll talk about today. Her memoir, While You Were Out, tells the story of growing up in the Chicago suburbs with seven brothers and sisters, a charming but manic father, a brilliant but melancholic and often absent mother, and a messy pile of secrets. Welcome, Meg. It's so great to be with you and talking about this amazing work. Thanks, Rob. I can't think of anybody I would rather be talking to about it than with you. So it's my privilege. Thanks so much. I have to say that what I love about this book is that you bring the keen eye of a reporter, the storytelling chops and wit that may be part of the Kissinger DNA, and the passion of someone who has looked squarely at human suffering and institutional failure and wants to expose it. So let's start here. What prompted you to write this book? to dig through and air your family's story? And how did that flow from your work as a mental health reporter? Yeah, uh, it's always been in me. You know, I, I as, the, as the fourth of uh, eight kids, and as you wisely point out, you know, a boisterous clan we were, uh, I was always the nosy one, the monkey in the middle, you know, so curious about what was going on in my family, and we did not talk about it. So that only made me even more curious. Um, and and you know, when tragedies befell us, and they did in spades, um, you know, that piqued my cur- curiosity all the more. And I was naturally inclined then to write stories about how people with mental illness suffer in this country and are not well tended uh and and that that provided me with a pretty lively career for quite a long time i was very fortunate to work at the milwaukee journal sentinel which is a regional newspaper with dedicate editors who are squarely dedicated to writing about people less fortunate and and gave me all kinds of support in terms of you know, the budget to go places and the time to write these stories in great depth. So I was very grateful for that. But I realized, that, you know, years and years into this, that kind of the the 
most intense story was the one I never really examined thoroughly. And that was the story of my own family. And if I was going to do that, I would need to do that in the same way that I would approach an, an investigative story that I would write for the newspaper, which was a scary undertaking. You know, it meant that I had to file Freedom of Information Act requests for my brother's my brother and sister's uh, police records. I got their medical files. It was a it was a mystery waiting to be solved, but it was a very personal mystery, and I was a, more than a little nervous about doing it. Yeah, well, that comes through the the, the digging. Uh, it's just an incredible. It is an incredible piece of investigative work in this book. Um, there's a lot of pain in the story of your own family, but there's also a lot of humor, uh, as we just referred to, and and kind of a ferocious drive by you and your siblings to help and protect each other. And I think may- maybe yeah. the best way to give a sense of your family and your delicious storytelling would be for you to read a couple of passages from the first chapter of your book. Could you do that for us? Sure, Rob, I shall. Thank you so much. So this is the very beginning of the book, and then I'm going to skip down to the last section of that same first chapter. So it starts out by saying, when we were little, my sister Patty and I liked to pretend that ferocious tigers lurked in the space between our twin beds, just waiting to rip us to shreds. They stalked us at night with their razor-sharp fangs, growling and snorting and licking their chops. Dip a toe or a finger down too low and snap, they'd chomp it off clean to the bone. We'd bounce from one bed to the next, shrieking as we flew through the air. Pipe down, you two, or I'll come in there and beat you to a bloody pulp, my mother would yell from her bedroom down the hall. The invisible tigers scared us. Our mother did not. Watch this, I whispered to Patty as I leaned over the side of my bed and slowly wiggled my fingers down into the pit. She'd poke her curly little head over the side of her bed and stare into the big black hole, nervously wheezing as she waited for one of the tigers to take the bait. I'd squeeze my eyes shut, imagining the hungry beasts skulking towards us, the smell of their musky fur filling my nostrils and feel the thumping of my heart in the middle of my throat. I said, pipe down, my mother would call out, weaker this time. We knew she didn't have the energy to beat us, much less into any bloody pulp. My mother, an erstwhile debutante with a genius IQ, now spent her days rubbing ointment on baby's blistered bottoms, wiping snot off our faces, plastering our cowlicks with her spit, and dripping warm medicine into our oozing, infected ear canals. She stuffed our lunch bags with peanut butter and potato chip sandwiches as she helped us conjugate Latin verbs, folded laundry while she quizzed us on multiplication tables, and typed our term papers between bouncing a baby on her lap and ironing our uniform blouses. My mother was, uh, my mother was, oh, I'm sorry, her own mother was dead, and she had no sisters, So it fell to my mother to raise her eight children, more or less by herself, while my father was out of town most of the week on business. My father, Bill Kissinger, we called him Homer, 
sold advertising space to companies that manufactured tranquilizers and other so-called ethical pharmaceuticals to harried mothers of the baby boom. Business was brisk, especially in our North Shore Chicago neighborhood, where women, a great number of them Irish Catholics like my mother, were expected to fill the pews with as many children as they could bear, whether they had the stamina or not. Our father's sudden mood changes and our mother's and our mother's melancholia made us tense, like little deer teetering through the forest, vulnerable and unprotected. We fretted that the tigers could come bounding toward us at any second. Or maybe they creep up on us slowly, slinking through the grill, slinking through the glades, as tigers often do. We wanted to be good. We tried our best to be brave. Once, we dared ourselves to fall asleep holding hands over the tiger pit. But we never stopped worrying about the beasts that we imagined swirl between our beds. We knew we were no match for them, and we dreaded the day that they would rip us apart. It seemed like only a matter of time. Indeed, one day, the tigers did come. Uh, do you want me to finish that little end of the chapter? Uh, sure, if you feel it, if you're if you're up for it, that would be great. Sure, okay. They were not real tigers, I think. Yeah, we they were yeah. not real tigers, of course, but a menace just as ferocious, with a power just as deadly. They scratched and clawed until they made mincemeat of us all. Some in our family were de- devoured from head to toe, never to be seen again. A sister ripped to shreds and swallowed whole. Then, years later, a brother, snatched before our very eyes. We could see it happening. We just couldn't do anything to save him. Or maybe we were too scared to try. Those of us who were left tried to hide, but the beasts were relentless. Just when we thought that that we were free, one would spring toward us, and then another and another. Eventually, we were all mauled and mangled. No one escaped unscathed. In time, we learned that if we were to survive, we couldn't just shiver under our covers the way Patty and I used to. We'd each have to figure out a way to fight back, wrestle those fuckers to the ground, pound them into submission once and for all. If not, they'd surely come back and get us too. Wow. What a great way to start a book. So thank you. Looking back on life in the Kissinger household, what were the signs, even in retrospect, in retrospect, that things were not all good with your mom and dad and later with some of your siblings? And what strategies did you and your siblings devise to deal with some of the chaos and confusion that seems to have reigned? Yeah, I think I first picked up on it, you know, as a five-year-old. Um, my mom, who, who was really, a, you know, a loving, wonderful person, but she could be very spacey. She would she would often kind of drift off, and it was hard to kind of get to her. Um, she was quite busy, <laughs> you know, as I just outlined, she had eight kids in 12 years and, um, a husband that was gone a lot. Um, but well, how we would cope with that, we, you know, we leaned on each other. I think, um, we would look to each other for 
comfort. Um, my sister Patty and I, roommates that we were, you know, we would lull ourselves to sleep. My mom didn't have the bandwidth to, uh, you know, attend to us too much. She did read to us each night, which I loved. But, you know, we didn't have, there wasn't, we didn't have the full opportunity to get rocked to sleep every night. Or So we kind of did that for each other. And then as we got older, you know, and, and things were, it was more apparent that there was trouble uh, within, um, we just, again, we we tried to kind of find comfort with each other. You know, where I grew up was really an enclave of very big families, you know, being Catholic and, um, and, w- and the neighborhood that we grew up in was one of some wealth. So we had, we had some privilege and uh, there were just big old families. And, and, and if you ran out of a brother and sister, there were plenty of families down the block with lots of spare brothers and sisters. So we all kind of, these families kind of melded together and, I'm sure I know now as an adult, I know that there were a lot of those families were also struggling with alcohol abuse or mental illness. So we look to each other. Yeah. As you had to, I guess you read a lot about secrets in your family, some of which you didn't really figure out until decades later as you were writing the book. Uh, for example, you had an uncle, and all you knew about him, or or thought you knew, was that he was a pilot who died during World War II. Tell us what you learned about him and other pilots in training. Yeah, Rob, this blew me away. So this this was my father's older brother, Jack, and um, we imagined, or I think we just assumed that he was killed and we knew he died during world war two and that he was a pilot. So I think we just connected the dots and, and assumed that he was killed someplace in Germany or Japan, uh, you know, valiantly. Um, but what I, and, and again, my parents and my dad never talked about it and neither did his parents, my grandma and grandpa did a, they, they lived with us off and on for, sometime when we were young and uh all we knew about uncle jack was that we said a prayer for him every night when we would say grace at dinner we would always include a little shout out to uncle jack um anyway what i came to learn by getting his army records um was that he was killed in texas um on american soil of course in training and and uh that it was they were so desperate for pilots in the early going. This was in 1943, so the beginning of the American involvement in the war. And they would take these young guys and just put them up in these planes with almost no training. And that was the case of my uncle, who was uh, scrambling to finish his flight training and went up on a Saturday night unsupervised. And um, I came to learn that over 15,000 young, I'm assuming men, although, yeah, it was probably exclusively men in those days, 15,000 died in training. That's just staggering to me. Um, and it's a story that is not very widely known or told. So that was one secret. Um, you know, and another was, 
on my mom's side of the family, um, my mom's youngest brother was born when she was away at her freshman year of college. She was embarrassed that her mother was having a baby uh, while she was afraid that people were going to think it was her baby because she was 18 years old. And if she was strolling a little baby around the neighborhood, that people would make the assumption that it was her her baby. But uh, anyway, my uncle, also named John, um, was born with Down syndrome. But my grandparents were never really accepting of that. And they really resisted the opportunity to get him uh, into the care that he really needed. And and so that was a I think that was a great a source of great sorrow and frustration for my mom. So they came into the marriage, both of them, with these 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 secrets and these and and the sadness from within. Uh, and they had never really resolved those traumas um, when they began their own baby production. <laughs> so. Uh, it was on shaky ground that this family was even launched. Yeah, I have to tell you that the piece about the pilots and training struck a chord with me because my own father tried to fake his way into the Air Force. Um, he had, you know, he had bad vision and he tried to he he tried he volunteer, you know, he tried to volunteer and he he tried to fake his way through the the vision test, um, but failed to do so, and ended up in the in the army. Um, and it just it makes me realize that I'm glad that he I'm I'm glad he didn't he didn't make his way into the into a pilot into the career yeah. as a pilot that he wanted. Yeah. Right, we wouldn't be having this conversation probably. That's right. right. That's right. So your mom's hospitalization um, later, well, actually, I just I just gave away the punchline. I was going to say there was a time there was a, a day that you came downstairs and your mother was nowhere to be seen and your right. father loaded you into into the car and, and drove right. you off somewhere. Tell us right. about that. Yeah. So this was we had just moved back from Connecticut. My dad had started uh, a, a magazine uh, he and another guy started this magazine. It's still around. It's called Physicians Management. And it was intended to be kind of a business magazine for physicians uh, and, and tips on how to manage their practice. Um, but really, the the beauty of it was that it was chock full of advertisements. And especially, this is in the early 1960s, 61, 62, and uh, tranquilizers were coming on to the marketplace fast and furious. Milltown, um, the early versions of, of Prozac, um, or, or I should say um, uh, sedatives of, of, anyway, the, the so-called ethical pharmaceuticals, which, which meant that you uh, got prescriptions for them. And America was going gangbusters with pharmaceutical sales. So we moved out to Connecticut um, so that my dad could manage the business in New York City and lived in a idyllic town of New Canaan. Um, but it went bad 
for my father quickly. Um, and he began to kind of have doubts about his business partner and the tension between the two became so much that he quit. He ended up suing his business partner. So there was tumult there and we moved back in a hurry. And my dad bought this house that my mother had not even seen and was not really to her liking. Anyway, she was quite frazzled and she had just had her seventh baby and um, I was going into, my, into first grade and I came down the stairs one morning and she was just gone. Anyway, we were not told where she was. We had no idea. I thought maybe she had another baby, <laughs> but the other, the other, the current baby was only about five months. So I just didn't know, you know, I didn't know details at that stage of the game. Um, anyway, we were hauled off my sister, Patty and I to my uncle's house in Chicago. And, um, it was an adventure, but it was a scary adventure because we had no idea where the heck we were going or why. So we were there for, I don't really think we were even there very long, Rob, but when you're five years old, uh, three days or however long it was seemed like a long time. And especially when you don't know why you're there. So um, I, I later came to learn that it was my mother was just being hospitalized for depression and she would go back into the hospital a few months later it was and just kind of almost like cinematically it was the very week that president kennedy was assassinated so while you know america is mourning this horrible tragedy i am a little first grader worrying again about where my mother is so it was a pretty intense time in my life <laughs> and life of america <laughs> Yeah, and that hospitalization of your mother um, would be followed by others, and later by the decline of your sister Nancy into into severe depression, and eventually uh, to her death by suicide. Some years later, your brother Danny also took his own life. So, how did your family navigate and talk about these issues about the the mental health problems that were, you know? smacking you in the face yeah well the short answer is we didn't <laughs> so um at first i mean ultimately we it could not have been avoided but I, I will tell you about the night that my sister nancy died so nancy was very troubled and uh again in that era so now we're talking about the mid 1970s uh we didn't have the term they didn't refer to people as bipolar i think now they would that would probably be what she would be called um but she had severe mood swings she was very impetuous um she got psychotic she she had hallucinations and delusions I, i've seen some medical records where it refers to her as having schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder I kind of think more she was, and I, I'm not a medical professional by any stretch, but knowing what I do now know, having spent so many years, you know, writing about the mental health system, my hunch is that she was really bipolar, but had psychotic features. Nonetheless, she was quite ill and it was very disruptive. You know, she could be violent. Uh, she could be very menacing. She could be very, she was hilarious and she was brilliant but she could be a tough one to live with. So I steered clear of her. I was four years younger than she. Um, 
but we, I, I just knew to, to stay out of her path. Um, and when she got sicker and sicker, I was a teenager and I, I was frustrated with her. I was angry with her for taking up all the oxygen in the room and making my mom and dad so worried. You know, my dad was a very emotional guy and he would, he'd cry. He would be so worried about her and so sad. And my mom was not one to show great emotion. I think maybe that went hand in glove with her depression and more of a flat affect. But I knew that she was very worried about her. So when Nancy, Nancy had many, many, many suicide attempts and some more public than others. But when she finally did die, um, and I, I go into, um, kind of the mystery that surrounded the actual, the day that she did finally die. Uh, and, and what I learned in writing this book, which really floored me, and I won't spoil it. I'm going to add that as a little twist. Um, but I will tell you this, that the night that she died, my dad called us all into the living room and he instructed us, you know, in no uncertain terms. He said, if anybody asks, this was an accident. So that seemed kooky to me like why would anybody in the world buy that everybody had known everybody in our parish everybody on our block all of our friends knew that nancy had attempted suicide many times they weren't going to buy my any kind of cockamamie explanation that that it was an accident um but i and my dad wasn't trying to be mean he was worried he was worried that she would not be afforded a funeral that the Catholic Church did not look thoughtfully or, or kindly on people who died by suicide. They consider that a, a, a sin, a mortal sin, and you were not to be given uh, a funeral uh, or be buried on Catholic grounds. My dad, had, one of my dad's best friends, had a son, a son who died the year before of suicide, and my dad went to that funeral and came home heartbroken. Um, their parish priest knew that the that the boy had died by suicide and didn't allow his body into the church. So they had a memorial service and the, the boy's casket was, you know, in a in a hearse idling down the block. So anyway, that, that was the that was the atmosphere that that Nancy died in and and that was a um the motivation for my dad telling us not to, to, to not to reveal that she had died by suicide. But what that did to me was to make me more ashamed and to suggest that Nancy's death was something that we should be ashamed of and that uh that this her mental illness was a choice and and um I think that set the stage. I know it set the stage for us to try and push that down. And her funeral was, she died on a Friday night. Her funeral was on Monday morning. On Tuesday, I went back to my summer job. I was going to my senior year of college. We all just went on about our business. And, and really, we never sat down as a family to discuss it. That seems insane to me now. But but that's how that's how it was for us. Yeah. You you wrote there's this, a, a little passage in the book where you write about sort of the the way that your family, you know, sort of dealt with some of this, and I, I'm just going to read that 
quickly. Our family language of wisecracks and one-liners had been our way of keeping us all from panicking, to distract us from the truth that we were scared out of our minds. We used humor as a kind of band-aid to keep the fear and anger from infecting us. But wounds also need fresh air and sunlight to heal, and we still weren't ready to sit down as a group and thoughtfully consider what was happening. We were simply in survival mode. Something clicked with all of us in the months after Danny died. We began to feel cursed. If this could happen twice in our family, why not a third time or a fourth? Was there something in our gene pool that would kill each of us? Our gene and bill pool, as we called it, referring to the names of your parents. We started looking around, wondering who might be next, nature or nurture. Either way, we were in trouble. Take two alcoholics, one with bipolar and the other with crippling anxiety, and let them have eight kids in 12 years. What could possibly go wrong? That passage really just struck me, and I think it sums up a lot about about your family and about, and it also, you know, um, kind of epitomizes your writing, um, which just is so direct and to the point, um, as well as the as the sort of gallows humor um, that I think circulated in your family. Right. Um, when you look at the mental illness that coursed through your family, what do you conclude about that about that nature nurture you know genes environment question that you pose in that in that passage? And do you, do you think? What do you think could have made a difference in your family um, to have maybe helped um, prevent the suicides of Nancy and Danny, if anything? Yeah, uh, I, I do think that, well, I, think, I know that bipolar runs in our family. Um, and we're still at such you know, in the infancy stages of really understanding mental illness in the way that we do other illnesses. I know there's a lot of research. There's a lot of good people who are working really hard to help us better understand that, but we're so far away from that. So anything I say is going to be based on conjecture, but my gut instinct is that we are just prone to that. We have that in the same way that a lot of families have either like the BRCA gene for breast cancer or some other hereditary illness. Uh, it's just lousy in our family. And what could have helped us was a lot. You know, we could have had early intervention uh, in both in the schools. You know, our teachers could have been on the lookout for this social workers, uh, family therapy for sure. You know, I now know a lot of families who are going through some of the similar, some similar things that, that our family went through and they're getting good care. They're, they're getting family therapy. The, the, um, the therapists are inviting the parents in and the siblings and, and workshopping ways to deal with this erratic behavior, um, and it's in, in our day, you know, as when, when Nancy was first getting ill and then others in our family too, we were seen as the enemies. We were seen as kind of the root cause. And, you know, there's the old, uh, ad, the old storyline of the cold and distant father and the schizophrenic mother and, and how the parenting was the cause of, of their mental illness. And we now know that's a bunch of hooey. Um, 
And so I know that we could have been helped. I think especially in the case of my brother, Danny. So Danny was the second youngest in our family. Nancy was the second oldest. They were 10 years apart. Um, And Danny was always, so he was 14 years old when Nancy died. And he was very embarrassed to have a sister who died by suicide. And he did tell people that she died in an accident. Um, And he always saw that as a weakness, which is so ironic because he would later go on to develop his own very fierce version of, of bipolar. And um, the, the, the discrimination and the shame of, of mental illness was really very strong in him. Uh, And I, I really feel that if we had more fully talked about Nancy, we'd taken out all the blame and the shame in, in how she was dealt with that he would have felt freer when his own bad thoughts started coming on and he would have been able to confide more in us and gotten greater comfort from us. And, and I, you know, I've thought so much, of course, I've, I've, spent hundreds of hours, you know, over my life thinking about why did my brother and sister get to that point? And, and, and I think people who decide to die by suicide really feel there's no other option. There's no better way out for them. Um, And I wish so much that we've been able to have these conversations so that they had better other alternatives So let's shift gears uh, now to your work as a journalist. What made you decide to pursue the high-paying, glamorous career of a print reporter? <laughs> and how quickly and why did you latch on to the mental health beat? Yeah, you know what's so funny is my, my first job was in upstate New York, in Watertown, New York. I had no idea where that was. I did not pay attention in geography class. And when they said New York, I thought, oh, Bloomies, I'll go shopping on the weekend and go to Broadway. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's seven and a half hours, Rob. It's a long way from Watertown to New York City. Um, But, uh, and I had forgotten this. My, My old editor, a great guy by the name of John Johnson, who I still exchange Christmas cards with, uh, found a series that I did back then on um, mental health in teenagers. And I'm sure that was me trying to learn what I could through the lens of a journalist because I had not been offered that as the sister of somebody who had just died by suicide or, um, you know, uh, somebody who has a substantial amount of mental illness in the family. So I think I was using, again, I don't think, I know, I was using my journalism as kind of a cover to get my own therapy. Um, and I could do that without any of the trappings of secrecy. I could, I could very aggressively and, and uh, full-throatedly, you know, investigate what it was like to struggle with mental illness and what is, what's available for people. And, you know, not a surprise. Uh, there are, especially in those days was not a lot available and not a lot of sustained good care. So I just gravitated. I think the, again, the curious person in me 
gravitated to those stories. And even though I covered a lot of things in my career, I covered crime in the courts for many years. Um, at one point, when my kids were tiny, I wrote a gossip column, of all things. It was just a way for me to stay in daily newspapers while raising two tiny kids. But I always found my way back to stories about people with mental illness and the shabby ways that they're treated. Because to me, it, it never stopped shocking me. I, 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 I never, I never become inured or, or, or numb to the fact that we do such a horrible job in caring for people who need help so much. So I want to give viewers uh, a little taste of your news writing um, and that and the incredible empathy, I think, that comes through in, in that work. Um, this is from a piece that you wrote and that was published as part of a series in 2000 in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Uh, and what was the title of the series, Meg? Um, it was called Broken Promises, which is kind of the title of every investigative series, I think. But that was it. <laughs> Broken Promises. Okay. He talks in a deep, round voice that sounds like a tape recording in slow motion. His jaw is clenched, and his steel-blue eyes are darting across the East Side restaurant, where the owner feeds him for free if he promises not to beg outside the front door. It's been a long slide from the kitchen of his childhood in Wauwatosa, where he, his parents, his brothers and sisters bow their heads each night, chanting, Bless us, O Lord, and these, thy gifts to eating garbage out of trash cans in the alleys of the East Side. John is 40 years old, and he has been mentally ill for as long as anyone can remember. His doctors say he has schizoaffective disorder, a relatively rare disorder marked by symptoms of schizophrenia, man mania, and depression. He hears voices. Sometimes he thinks it's God whispering in his ear. Other times it's Satan teasing him, mocking him, daring him to do his evil handiwork. Laura, his girlfriend from seventh grade, giggles and coos. At least he hears her voice. Sometimes he can't stop laughing. Other times he cries so hard he chokes. For the past five years, he's also been addicted to crack cocaine, a tidy way to escape the funhouse mirror of his mind. Roughly one-third of all people diagnosed as mentally ill abuse drugs and alcohol, the National Mental Health Association reports. If this were before 1975, John might have been locked up in a hospital, told when he could eat, where he could smoke his beloved cigarettes, who his friends would be, and often how to shave. Today, he walks free, sleeps out, outdoors, bums money off strangers, guzzles 40-ounce cans of beer, has sex with strange men in, a, in exchange for rocks of crack cocaine. A six-month Journal Sentinel investigation of the plight of the mentally ill in Milwaukee found many people like John, wandering homeless, living in squalor, imprisoned in vast numbers, and warehoused in nursing homes or other institutions where they get little, if any, care. That's powerful stuff, Meg. Tell oh, me about thanks. this series and, and the reaction to it. Yeah. So, uh, oh, the wonderful John Spurl, who I ended up, I followed that guy. He died two years ago of COVID. Um, but his family, 
his mother. He lived a long time then. From he did, yeah, he did. Yeah, he was. He was. He was a champ. He was a and brilliant man. Hilarious. I I think I. I think I laughed. I I don't can't remember laughing as hard as when I did when I was with John Spurl, and another woman who I also spent many years writing about. But um, but uh, what propelled me to this was um, that I would see people, you know, out around town who I knew had mental illness in the same way that my sister did uh, and the same way that my others in my family did. And um, it, and it just seemed like, how how is it that they're not getting care? And when I found the Spurl family, I felt like I was looking in, into my own window. You know, they were, they are just the loveliest family and the most intelligent caring uh just thoughtful people and i thought if this could happen to one of their own it could happen to anybody uh and and i think that that's i don't think again i don't think i know (laughs) that we are so quick to judge people with mental illness and and really we really want to assign blame that's just a human instinct i think and and it must be something that the parents did or, you know, it's some character flaw. It it can't just be that they're ill, that this is bad behavior and it's willful behavior and, and it needs to be punished. And I just know that's not true. And John, to me, John Spurl personified that for me. Um, We're also so, so uh, ready to, uh, you know, and many journalists, unfortunately, are so ready to, to caricature people with many mental illness. Uh, and, you know, what's amazing, you know, what's just so impressive to me is the way that you, you know, render really rich portraits of, of the people that you write about. You, you know, you spent a lot of time with them and you, they're human, they're fully fleshed human beings, which is just, I think it's a gift and it's, it's, um, it's so important to in, in, in covering this, this, this field. Um, but it also must've been when you immersed yourselves in these stories, given your own family history, it must've been incredibly difficult emotionally and psychologically for you. And I I wonder how you coped with that. Yeah. I, I, (laughs) it's funny you should mention that Rob. Thank you for that. Uh, that, that was generous description of my writing. And I, um, I, I haven't, I haven't read that stuff about John Spurl in so many years. And um, that is how I remember him. Um, how I dealt with it was go harder and harder and harder. And um, so that was, um, that was not good. You know, I now am a trainer for the Dart Center on Trauma and Journalism at Columbia University. So my work is now with journalists writing about mental health. And what I advise them is what I wish somebody would have advised me, which is, you know, this is intense stuff. These are human beings who are struggling and suffering and you need to be mindful of your own mental health. But I was on such a mission, you know, I I really had a, a feisty streak in me that I wanted people to know the injustice. I'm really still just flattened by uh, the discrimination against people 
with mental illness and just makes me so angry. And I just think people need to really understand that. So that was the fuel in me that kept going and telling these stories over so many years. I mean, I was at this for over 25 years. But towards the end of that time, I really got ground into the into the dirt. I, I just I really felt like I was um again on a mission. Um I always tell my students, you know, journalists are not advocates. We are in, are in favor of the truth. We want people to we want to shine a light, but we are not lobbying politicians. We are we are showing what's happening and letting the change makers do it how they will. Um, that's a very thin line. It gets blurred a lot, but but I really feel that um, that that was my task was to just hold a light up to people with mental illness and show them in all their humanity. So they are not saints, but neither are they sinners. They're a little bit of both. They're they're human beings. Um, but anyway, but my own mental health, I ultimately was, you know, really almost getting flashbacks of my own. You know, I I write in the book about how sometimes at night I would lie there thinking about this story that I was working on and see, you know, my, my mother and my brother and my sister. One time I was in a laundromat. I was doing a series of articles about the horrific housing for people with severe mental illness. And these were people who used to be institutionalized and when they started downsizing the asylums and the and the state mental or county mental hospital, uh, there was not there were not good exit plans. There was there was not good permanency planning, and a lot of these folks were ended up in uh, single room only or boarding houses, and they were hell holes, rat infested, exposed wires, awful places. And I was chronicling that anyway. I ended up at a laundromat in Milwaukee. And there was a really funny lady in there that I could just tell she was just a character. So I naturally gravitated towards her. Anyway, long story short, turns out uh, she told me that she was from a little town outside of Chicago. And I said, really, where? And she said, oh, you never heard of it. It's called Wilmette. And I said, I'm like, shut up. I'm from Wilmette. And she said, no, you shut up. And we started pushing each other like, you know, Elaine from Seinfeld. Anyway. She knew my sister Nancy. They had been together in the psych ward at Evanston Hospital. And I thought, wow, you know, things have really come full circle. Like, here I am profiling a woman who could have been my sister and knew my sister. So that was wonderful and horrible at the same time. And I came to really follow her for many years. She too died. And when she died, her family kindly asked me to give the eulogy. Um, and I became, you know, very fond of her and that's kind of a, uh, you know, an occupational hazard when you spend so much time with the people that you're writing about, you tend to fall in love with them or, you know, care about them so deeply. And I, I eventually stopped writing about Georgia was her name. I stopped writing about Georgia because I did consider her to be a dear friend and I didn't want to meld those two roles. Um, but I, would tell myself now the the now book writing lady would tell the reporter lady you need to take some mental health breaks of your own i had a guy in the newsroom one time telling me he's like meg you're starting to look like the people you cover 
And it was true. I was getting kind of ground down. Wow. So when you decided to do the book, that was obviously a big decision. And you knew that you were going to have to do, you know, you referred before to, to like having to FOIA for your brother and sister's medical records. Um, but you were also, <laughs> you're also writing about very personal stuff about, you know, your surviving siblings. Um, how did you, uh, you know, did, did, was that a struggle to get them to go along with this? And did, you know, did, what, what was their attitude toward it? And what, what did you fear would be their attitude toward it? Right. I, I addressed this on the very first page in my author's note, because the fact of the matter is I love my brothers and sisters so much and I, and I care about them so much. I, I put that way over any kind of ambition that I have as a journalist, you know, so I would say in the hierarchy of things, I am, you know, a, a wife and a mother and now grandmother and a sister first, and then a journalist. But I hope that I can combine those roles, but I, it was not worth it to me if, if this was going to cause a rift with any of my, my brothers and sisters. We'd all been through way too much for me to add pile on any more agony. So I reached out to all of them and said, I, I want to do this. I want to bear witness and tell what it was like for our family, but I'm going to do it in the way that I would do one one of my investigative projects and i'm gonna i'm gonna seek out all these records and look through mom's diaries and look through homer's the chicken scratches in his aa book um and i'm gonna go full tilt here and i don't know what i'm gonna find so uh but if you want to blackball this tell me right now um to a person they didn't flinch and I knew I loved them anyway, but then I really loved them because they gave me not just the green light, but then as I was putting this together, I had so many questions and I would call them at all hours, texting, calling, emailing, and they, to a person, they answered my questions. Uh, they allowed me to tell some very personal things about them that I didn't even know. Um, here's a quick example. My sister, Patty my little tiger pit pal, she ended up in a psych ward in Milwaukee when she was a senior in college. I never knew that. I later went on to write about the psychiatric hospitals in Milwaukee. I had no idea over those years that my own sister Patty had been a patient there at one point. Um, so this was very intense stuff. And I, I put it all in a Google Doc, you know, the the coroner's report and the, the police files and the medical records. And I, I said to them, I have, I have all this. If you want to access it, have at it. Uh, if you don't, then that's perfectly fine too. The only thing I'm going to ask you is before I hit the send button to the editor, I want you to read this book and let me know, you know, if, is this accurate? First of all, and is, if there, is there anything that's going to cause you so much heartache that it shouldn't be in there? They all read it. They corrected a few things, but there was nothing in there, nothing that they said, please don't put in there. And there's some there's some very intimate details in there. So thank you, Mary Kay, 
Jake, Patty, Billy, and Molly, I love you. Let's talk a little bit. We only have a few minutes left, but let's talk a little bit about about policy. Um, and and actually, early, early in the and and connected to family too, in in a way. Early in the book, you note a connection between your family and that of the Kennedy family. So, tell me about that, and then about the legacy of John F. Kennedy and the 1963 Community Mental Health Act. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Kennedys were Irish and Catholic, and there were a lot of them. And a lot of them, and they died tragically, um, many of them. Um, and yeah, uh, Rosemary, who famously, infamously, had been the subject of a lobotomy, um, you know, the horrific, uh, well, the guy who developed a lobotomy won the Nobel Peace Prize. But anyway, nonetheless, that's a book in, all, in and of itself. But she ended up being so disabled by her by this procedure that she ended up, of all places, at St. Coletta's in Jefferson, Wisconsin, in the very uh, facility that my mother's brother, John, was at. Um, and so uh, President Kennedy, I think because of his family experience um, and his sister, uh, Una Shriver, was very involved in uh, Special Olympics and then calling attention to uh, the needs of people with developmental disabilities and mental illness. And they greatly encouraged him to to uh, sign this Mental Health Act of 1963. He signed it on October 31st. It was the last thing he did. He was gunned down in Dallas two weeks later. Um, and with him died a lot of the enthusiasm for mental health reform. Not to say that he was the only guy out there ag- you know, agitating or, or championing mental health reform, but after his assassination, you know, the country went on to other pressing issues, uh, among them, the investigation about his assassination, and of course, the Vietnam War and civil unrest. Anyway, uh, what happened was nothing good. Uh, They did empty out a lot of the asylums, um, and but they did not build the community mental health centers that they promised fewer than half that they had earmarked were ever built. So people were ushered, you know, out of care, a lot of it horrible care, but care nonetheless into nothing. So, um, Rob, I know we we are pressed for time, but I just want to say, you know, your own uh, creation, you know, Mindsight News, which is the website or the news aggregator and and the news site, that I spent my whole life wishing for, you know, you are now covering these issues so many years later, you know, here we are 60 years and beyond this uh, push for mental health reform. And we are still doing a very lousy job at it. And I'm grateful to your organization for bird dogging this, you know, you're on the lookout for for what we need to do in this country to make mental health care much more robust. And so our work continues <laughs> and uh we need to do a whole lot more of it. And I I'm I, this was just one way. This is kind of my aside from my journalism, this was my way to narratively again tell what one family goes through. So we're in a lot of company. There are a lot of Kissinger, a lot of families out there like the Kissinger family that need, need better mental health care. 
So yeah, and what, you know, one positive thing. I mean, you know, I'm struck when I when I read that passage uh, from you know 2000 about <laughs> you know how little has changed, and when I think back to my own reporting on mental health issues in in like the 80s how little has changed as we were writing about, you know, people going from the street into the, into jails, into the emergency hospital and back on the street. And, and all of that is, is so much the same now, except it's even in, in far greater numbers. Um, But one thing, I mean, you know, I guess a couple of positive notes. Um, One is that, you know, in the last couple of years, more money has been allocated for mental health than 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 ever. Um, and secondly, and, and you'll see this since you teach a mental health reporting class at Columbia, there's there are finally, you know, people who have the ambition, young, young journalism students and reporters who who really want to cover mental health, which was like you were the only mental health reporter practically in the country for a long time. So how does how does it look to you now? Yeah, no, I, I agree, and I, I'm I'm thrilled. I my students are fantastic. They are they're so eager to write about that. They're equally as outraged as I have been all these years, and they are uh, they have such skill, and and they're they're also willing to share their own stories. I mean, they they grew up now, and their generation is much freer. They feel freer to talk about this, um, and. You know, I, I think it's it's so easy to get discouraged, Rob. And, you know, I think that's that's where we really need to keep pushing on. I, I think about, you know, how AIDS, how how uh, gay gay people in the in the early 80s agitated and really fought for a greater government uh, response to the AIDS crisis and I, I am so grateful for the example they set, the template that's there. And I think that people with serious mental illness need to do the same, need to, to borrow from that playbook and, and really demand fuller care. And we as journalists, you know, need to be telling these stories again and again and again and putting human faces on it, humanize these people who are suffering and uh, and insisting on nothing less than good care. Well, thank you, Meg. You've you've um, you've helped blaze the trail of doing exactly that, and and set a, a really a really good example for how this can be done. Uh, we're we're trying to keep that going and 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 build on it at Mindsight News. And um, and thank you so much for spending spending time today talking about your amazing book. And best of luck to you. Thank you, Rob. It was such a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. 